Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It has been a turbulent week in Italian politics, and there are fears across the European Union that the fallout may spread well beyond Italy's borders. That's the first item on our agenda this week. Later, I'll be talking to our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, about that on-again, off-again summit between Donald Trump and the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. Well, they say a week is a long time in politics, and that's certainly the case in Italy, because if you tuned in last week, you'll know I was talking about Italy's new populist government with our Europe editor, Patrick Smith. That new government was strangled at birth at the weekend when the Italian president, Sergio Mattarella, refused to accept the nomination of the Eurosceptic Paolo Savona as finance minister. The president cited concerns that the new government, a coalition of the anti-establishment five-star movement and the far-right league, planned to take Italy out of the Eurozone without giving Italians a chance to have a proper debate on the issue. Mr Mattarella has now appointed a former IMF economist, Carlo Cottarelli, to head a stopgap government that would prepare the way for new elections. Many in Italy have welcomed the President's intervention, but there have been calls from others, including the five-star leader, Luigi Di Maio, for him to be impeached. Paddy Smith is back on the line from Brussels. Paddy, you spoke last week about the alarm in Brussels over the prospect of a populist anti-establishment government coming to power in Italy. That government is no more. So is there a sigh of relief in Brussels about this turn of events? Well, scarcely, because the reality is the Italian uh, political crisis is very far from over. Um, Luigi Di Maio, the five-star leader you were talking about, is talking about leading marches of thousands of people uh, in the streets against uh, the new government uh, and against the president, who uh, has, he says, betrayed democracy. He he actually accused Mattarella of the most uh, insidious blow uh, to Italian democracy in, in, in the country's history, which is a bit rich, considering that this was the country that produced uh, Mussolini. Uh, whose march on Rome might actually be be said to to have uh, fulfilled that particular um, offence, if you like. What are the specific concerns then, Paddy, in Brussels and other EU capitals about about the way things have developed? Well, I I think um, there is a sense that we don't really know what uh, either the Lega or the Five Star Movement want in relation to uh, the euro uh, that, that is sort of hanging over us in the background. Um, more immediately is was their determination to basically tear up the EU's budget rules, and uh, so there is some relief that uh, Catarelli will will be put in place and will uh, be asked to uh, pass a budget. Now he has problems uh, immediately in the parliament because he doesn't have an actual majority there. And it's unlikely that he will get a budget through. It's unlikely he'll get a, a vote of confidence through from the parliament. So elections are on the, on the cards. When it is feared, uh, the euro will be a central issue. Mattarella's criticism of the uh, Lega five-star movement was that they hadn't actually sought permission from the Italian voters to take Italy out of uh, the euro and one suspects that this time they will they will actually try and get that permission. At the moment, uh, it's unlikely to be given. The Italians uh, are still, the polls are still showing the Italians in favour of, of remaining in the euro. But there's plenty of room for, for troublemaking and uh, the country is very volatile. But I suppose you touched on it there, Paddy. It's not really clear, is it, what exactly their position is on the euro. I mean, the... They wanted to appoint uh, Paolo Savona, uh, who's, who's 82 and um, has a kind of a long, a consistent record of opposing the, the euro um, as finance minister. But, but taking Italy out of the euro was not in the contract for government that they signed. And they, they denied that they wanted to take Italy out of the euro. 
Yes, uh, Paolo Savona's uh, uh, record, though, is pretty consistent, and, and he's written a book about how to take Italy out out of the euro. Um, and the refusal by the uh, Lega to re- to find come up with another candidate who would be more acceptable does seem to suggest that that they actually have the this uh, issue of the euro still very firmly on on their uh, their agenda. In a sense, though, might it not be a good thing if they did actually come come clean, if as it were, before a new election and did campaign on that issue? Because uh, at least you would uh, Italians would be able to have the debate that the president says they have been denied up to now. Yes, absolutely, and and uh, it is at the moment likely that they they wouldn't win a majority for withdrawal from the euro. But that's not so they wouldn't win a majority for their combined uh, tickets. Uh, and so it's it's very difficult uh, for the Italian uh, political system to accommodate uh, that sort of contradiction. The uh, uh, it's still not clear, for example, uh, whether or not uh, Lega and Feistar will run as a joint uh, campaign uh, in in the uh, elections that are going to happen, or whether Lega will go back uh, to its older bedfellow uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who uh, um, is willing apparently to uh, go back into into an alliance with them if that happens it is unlikely that the league would campaign for withdrawal from the euro there was an unusually blunt comment patty from the french president emmanuel macron in support of the italian president um do you think that kind of intervention from another eu member state is helpful i think it really does depend on where it's coming from uh, there is a lot of bad feeling in in italy about germany uh, at the moment, Germany is seen as, as uh, you know, the the devil incarnate that runs uh, the European Union and that is doing everything it can to prevent uh, Italy uh, how, uh, getting a slightly uh, looser budget uh, rules from from the EU. So, if, if Mrs. Merkel had said what Macron said, I suspect uh, there would be uproar. Um, Macron is a different kettle of fish, and he is quite widely ad- admired in in Italy, uh, and uh, he therefore would have perhaps more ability to make that sort of comment. It was very unusual, though, wasn't it? It was extremely unusual. Most mostly, uh, leaders of countries do their absolute best not to interfere in the internal politics. Of, of of other countries, and you can see in in the European Union, for example, at the moment that uh, every attempt that we make at, at commission briefings or council meetings to get the, the the European leaders to say something about what's going on in Italy is met by absolute refusal to to uh, to say anything whatsoever beyond platitudes about how uh, uh, Italy should adhere to its its uh, financial commitments. And uh, just for the record, we should say that Macron congratulated Mattarella and and um, congratulated him on his courage in, in taking the action he did. So what's likely to happen now, Paddy? I know that as we speak, the um, the, the new prime minister is having a meeting uh, on Tuesday afternoon with the Italian president. He'll bring forward a, a new, he'll nominate a new technocratic government. So what's their mandate beyond uh, really taking Italy into a new election? Well, the, he has two problems. The, the uh, Cattarelli has got to get um, see if he can get a vote through uh, Parliament to support his his uh, new government. If he succeeds in doing that, then it's likely that the elections won't happen until next spring. If he doesn't succeed in doing that, it could be any time after August, uh, and we're we're going to be plunged almost immediately in, into uh, uh, an election uh, season. 
I'll just say about Mattarella, it's very interesting what he's done. Um, if one sort of imagined uh, Michael D. Higgins uh, turning around to uh, Leo Varadkar and saying, actually, I don't like the person you brought to me as, as Minister for Health. Uh, would you pick somebody else, please? Uh, there would be shock and, and bewilderment in, in, in Ireland. Mattarella, as, as president, has, has much greater powers. Uh, and there is some argument about whether he is he's going beyond his constitutional prerogative. But lawyers do seem to think that actually he is entitled to uh, pick and choose on, on the, the candidates for, for, uh, for, for office. And it, it is a remarkable uh, um, provision, if you like, in the Italian constitution. It isn't, uh, it isn't something that, that is, that is uh, found uh, elsewhere. Yeah, but and I, and I think his action is not unprecedented, and and it's not the first time there has been calls for a president to be impeached in in these circumstances. What what do you think are the chances of that happening? Well, uh, the constitution, the Italian constitution, provides for impeachment only for high treason or for acting against the constitution. Now, uh, it's arguable uh, at a stretch that in in uh, in turning down these ministers, he he may have acted against the constitution because there is, as I said. An argument of whether about whether his constitutional prerogative extends that far, but that's a bit thin, and and it's it does seem quite unlikely that 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 would go through. On top of which, Lega uh, has said to the Five Star Movement, actually, we don't want to impeach him. We don't think he should be impeached. We don't like what he's done, uh, but we're we're not prepared to go as far as impeachment. So I, I think Lega, the Five Star Movement, will find it difficult to muster the forces in in, in Parliament uh, to do that. Is there a danger, Paddy, do you think that these developments are playing into the hands of Eurosceptics across Europe? Is it is it not being demonstrated here that the establishment will do anything to keep non-establishment, if you like, forces out of power? Yes and no. I, I think, and I, I think I've said this before, uh, that there's a, there's a considerable difference between uh, the, the Italian body politic, if you like, and, and other countries where... Eurosceptical and anti-establishment forces are genuinely about, you know, breaking up the union, about pulling their their states out of the union. In Italy, uh, which was a founder member, uh, it's a different climate. It, the, the criticism of of the European Union is much more that it hasn't acted as it should have acted, that it didn't do enough when it was expected to do it. Not that we want to bring the whole thing down, and certainly, if there's any support in Italy, for example, for for uh, breaking out of the of the of uh, breaking away from the euro, there is absolutely no support for for actually quitting uh, the European Union or for bringing the European Union down. So yes, there ha- there is some comfort for, to the forces of Euroscepticism. There is some comfort also for the forces of populism, but uh, I think that, that those shouldn't shouldn't really be overstated. And Paddy, are there any implications in any of this for the the Brexit negotiations um, at a time when the European Union obviously needs to keep a united front in negotiations with the UK? There aren't any signs of any implications in the sense that uh, there is still a completely united front of the the 27 member states in support of uh, Ireland. Um, it It isn't clear, for example... One might think that Italy might side with with Hungary and Poland if they wanted to um, make difficulties for the for the negotiating uh, team, but there's absolutely no sign of either of those two uh, breaking ranks, and and so I'm not sure that there are any implications for for Brexit except for creating this mood of uncertainty in in the European Union generally.
Okay, and, and where do you think, Paddy, this is all headed? I mean, I, I'm kind of gathering from what you said that an, an early election looks pretty much inevitable. I think an early election is certainly uh, uh, on the cards. I think there'll be uh, there'll be uh, trouble in Italy in the, in, in, in the streets. Uh, the markets have reacted very badly. Uh, you see uh, Italian bond yields uh, uh, rising. The risk of borrowing in Italy is regarded as, as dangerous markets. Uh, equity markets have, have also fallen. So I think Italy's in for a rough few months and the rest of the union will... Uh, watch uh, with concern. Okay, Paddy, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Patrick Smith is our Europe editor. Now to the United States, where preparations are again underway for a historic summit between the US President Donald Trump and the North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un. The summit had been fixed for Singapore on June 12th, but was abruptly cancelled by Mr Trump last Thursday. The following day, he hinted it might be back on again. And on Sunday, the US President tweeted... Our United States team has arrived in North Korea to make arrangements for the summit between Kim Jong-un and myself. I truly believe North Korea has a brilliant potential and will be a great economic and financial nation one day. Kim Jong-un agrees with me on this. It will happen. Today, Tuesday, we had a further tweet from the president, again confirming the talks concerning the summit are taking place and providing the additional news that the vice chairman of North Korea, Kim Yong-chol, is on his way to New York for talks. Suzanne Lynch joins me now from Washington. Suzanne, these are very fast-moving developments indeed. So is the summit definitely back on again? Well, I think for all intents and purposes, uh, both sides are actively preparing for a summit and are acting as if a summit is going to take place. But of course, there's been no confirmation of that. Um, But I think uh, both sides have indicated that they would like the summit to proceed as planned on June the 12th in Singapore. And of course, when this... summit was abruptly cancelled by Donald Trump last week. Already um, preparations had been in train. The media here had got, we'd got indications of press accreditation of plans for that summit on, on the June the 12th. Uh, a special commemorative coin uh, had been designed here in Washington to mark the summit. So it really was, you know, all systems go. And that was why there was such a surprise when Donald Trump pulled out of this summit last Thursday uh, through that letter that was sent to Kim Jong-un and circulated by the White House. So um, I think, as you say here, there's been a flurry of diplomatic activity over the weekend. Uh, We've seen a former U.S. ambassador, um, Sung Kim. He's a a very well-known American diplomat, a long New York Korea experience. He travelled to the demilitarized zone over the weekend, you know, to meet with North Korean officials. Um, Then we uh, have reports of some uh, U.S. staff going to Singapore to kind of make preparations for logistically for the summit. But I think the most important is this just kind of very much uh, developing news that Kim Yong-chol is traveling, is is on a flight to New York. Uh, That is is a big development. Donald Trump tweeted about that on Tuesday morning, confirmed that that is in the pipeline. So uh, I think that, again, is an indication that this summit may well take place. Yeah, that is very significant, isn't it? Because apparently he had previously, or maybe up to now, as far as we knew, had been on a U.S. blacklist. So certainly it seems, yes. it, it, it speaks of the high level of diplomatic activity going on that this has now been lifted. Yes, I mean, he's um, officially he's one of the vice chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea, and that's the, the communist um, organisation that, that through which um, the, the family controls uh, North Korea. Um, but he's, he's also one of, of uh, Kim Jong-un's closest aides, he, as you say, was personally, you know, targeted on the radar of the U.S. 
So I think, and he's also been um, alleged to have been involved in um, an attack, a sinking of a South Korean ship that left dozens injured, so dozens killed. So it's very significant that he's traveling to New York. It is reported that he traveled first to Beijing, was then due to get a flight to Washington, but instead went to New York. That is probably because uh, the North Koreans have um, a delegation of sorts at the UN in New York. Um, but perhaps it may be seen as a kind of quid pro quo for Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State's uh, two visits to Pyongyang. Um, and maybe this is seen as a kind of a reciprocal move by the North Koreans to show that they are indeed serious about this summit. Now, one thing is very clear is that Don- Donald Trump wants this meeting to happen. But does he have a united administration behind him on this question, do you think? Well, I think what's interesting about the development on North Korea is that it happened, um, you know, March and April, just as there was a um, some new faces in the White House. We had uh, Mike Pompeo appointed as Secretary of State after uh, Donald Trump fired Rex Tillerson. And indeed, he traveled to Pyongyang when he was the head of the CIA still before he was Secretary of State, which, which is in itself unusual. But then we had John Bolton, who had arrived as National Security Advisor. And he has had some very strong views in North Korea. He's talked before about, about bombing North Korea, um, about wanting regime change in the country. And, and most importantly and significantly, he has spoken about um, the Libyan model of denuclearization as a, as a roadmap for North Korea. Um, and this is specifically annoyed the North Koreans. They remember his role before back in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, and they have, in, in various communiques, singled him out uh, for criticism both personally and for this idea of, 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 of positing Libya as a model. And for obvious reasons, obviously, um, we all know how uh, Mimar Gaddafi came to an end. So um, in saying that, I think Donald Trump has these advisors around him, but this is a man who makes these decisions ultimately himself. And we saw that with his decision in the first place to meet with Kim Jong-un. That was taken by Donald Trump it pretty much instinctively, it seems. Um, when the South Korean delegation, if you remember, a couple of months ago came to the White House with this invitation, essentially, for Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump surprised even his closest advisors by saying yes. This was quite unusual. Usually a summit between two leaders at this, you know, at that level would, would come at the end of a negotiation process, not at the beginning. Uh, and I think that does show that Donald Trump is somebody who takes his decisions himself. We saw that last Thursday as well. Officials here at the, in Washington explained after the decision that Donald Trump himself had started to think about reconsidering the summit on Wednesday night. He slept on it on Thursday morning, he consulted with his advisors, and then he dictated that letter word for word. So I do think we are seeing a president who will act individually, ultimately, when it comes to it. And, and it was clear when you, when you read that letter, the letter which, which in, in which he cancelled the summit initially, it had his stamp on it. It was his language, wasn't it? Yes, it was a highly unusual diplomatic letter. I mean, I wrote myself, as many people did, it was more like a, a breakup letter rather than a you know, serious diplomatic memo uh, between two adversaries. And, you know, he spoke, to, spoke about how he felt a wonderful dialogue building up between you and me. Uh, and he urged Kim to call me or write me if he changed his mind. And he, he kind of was, was hoping to make another go of it between the two men. So I think this was a very much a, a very much Trump focused, um, Trump, a Trumpian style letter. And in a way, even though the sentiment was different, I think it reflects the way he's been engaging with Kim Jong Un so personally uh, since last uh, summer when he, you know, insulted him personally, calling him a little rocket man and seemed to be addressing him personally over Twitter. So we've seen this remarkable um, dialogue 
evolving between the two men that's been highly personalized and bizarrely now has come to the point where the two men may in fact meet uh, next month in Singapore. And of course that that letter of Trump cancelling the letter, cancelling the summit that was met with a very conciliatory response from North Korea and they sort of flattered Trump and said well they were disappointed the meeting wasn't happening but he was the only US president who had taken things this far and they referred to the Trump formula and they hoped it would work and so on and suddenly it mm. was back on like are we to believe that Trump is really that, that that is that really what got it back on this kind of personal flattery of him or, or does, is that too superficial a, a, an analysis it may have something to do with it. I think the fact that the North Koreans changed their tone in that letter, um, in their response to his letter, was a key moment. I mean, that was the key reason why he said, OK, this might now be on. Um, they had they had issued a communique on the Wednesday, last Wednesday in which they criticised Mike Pence as a political dummy. Um, they, they threatened nuclear war, essentially, to the US. And that was something that annoyed Donald Trump. And it was also in the context of basically been frozen out by North Korea in the preceding few days. Mike Pompeo, when he testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee last week, said essentially that the North Koreans had stopped returning their calls, that the U.S. then had sent diplomats, well, had sent a team to North Korea, to, to Singapore, excuse me, to do preparation for the summit, and the North Koreans had not shown up. Um, so I think at that point, perhaps there was a fear that North Korea itself would pull out, and that's why the U.S. decided to cancel it first. That's a very strong possibility. Um, and I don't think they believed or expected that North Koreans would would respond to this conciliatory fashion, but they did. So I think this is kind of you know Trump's Trump's art of a deal, bully boy tactics. You know you have to be prepared to walk away from the table. He's written that before, um, and in this case, at this point, it seems to have paid off if the summit uh, does go ahead. But then of course you have a much broader issue about what happens at the summit and what happens after the summit. And I think he's at the most. It's the most positive place for him at the moment. He's in control at the moment. The North Koreans look like they want to come to the table. But of course, the big battles and the big the complexities of all this have yet even to be revealed. And they will reveal themselves when the when the uh, two leaders meet and after that. And of course, Suzanne, the, the stakes here are very high. And even before all of this happened last week, before the summit was cancelled and then put back on again, it was reported in the New York Times, I think, that um, Trump was possibly getting cold feet and he was sort of badgering his advisors about whether, you know, it was a good idea or not a good idea, what the pitfalls were. So what do you think are the pitfalls here for Trump and what are the potential upsides if this summit goes well? Um, I think the major pitfall is there is a huge gap between what North Korea believes constitutes denuclearization and what uh, Donald Trump believes uh, constitutes denuclearization. And Donald Trump has used words like denuclearization, you know, as a shorthand for um, the completion, you know, I think the phrase he's used and his advisor have used are complete, verifiable and irreversible denuclearization. And most experts and analysts believe this is never going, this is not going to happen with North Korea. Even today, um, some of the US media are reporting that um, a very well-known nuclear advisor in Stanford, uh, Siegfried Hecker, is the only American scientist who's seen North Korea, Korea's uranium enriching facility says that denuclearization could take much longer than than is suggested. That it would would have to take about fifteen years. So I think um, at the moment, what hopefully is happening behind the scenes is that the various advisors who are speaking to each other at the demilitarized zone in Singapore, and uh, probably later this week in New York, um, are, are hopefully working out those issues, saying, you know, what do we need here? 
Uh, now, John, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, has said quite recently that they want, that he wants complete, uh, verifiable denuclearization before any economic sanctions are lifted. But Donald Trump has been a little bit more nuanced on that. So perhaps he is going to be uh, more open to a phased approach or some kind of a, of a timetable. Of course, the big irony and, and, and the big um you know, issue, challenge for Donald Trump at the moment is that he pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal for exactly those reasons, that he was not prepared uh, to accept a phased denuclearization in Iran, that he was not prepared to accept the fact that Iran, that the, the Iran deal had sunset clauses that expired. And of course, the other allies had expected to renegotiate them, but that was not enough for Donald Trump. So how can he then, on the other hand, accept um, a phased denuclearization in North Korea when he's walked away from that in Iran? So I think those contradictions are something that's going to have to be worked out. Now, Donald Trump is a man who looks at headlines. He looks at, um, you know, final uh, the final details rather than nuance of some of these negotiations. So he may be quite happy to ride out that contradiction and to let whoever takes over from him as president to deal with the consequences of this. Um, but it does seem, as you say, that he does want to deal. His motivation may well be personal that he wants the glory, if you like, he wants the, maybe the you know the Nobel Prize for this achievement, rather than any thought-through analysis of whether this is ultimately going to make the world a safer place and whether this is ultimately going to uh, to lead to denuclearization. And I think it's interestingly uh, here that some allies are warning against him against that. We saw um, the, Prime, the Prime Minister of Japan, Abe, he spoke to Donald Trump on Monday. He said he's going to meet Donald Trump before uh, any summit goes ahead. And he, Japan, for example, is very, very concerned and very worried about North Korea's commitment to this. And they're going to be one of the countries who are warning against the United States against signing up to too much on this, if the summit goes ahead. Okay. Well, Suzanne, clearly a very interesting few days ahead. We'll, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. Suzanne Lynch is our Washington correspondent. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.